Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, that's Elizabeth Frankel, and we're here to talk unconventional mentors, the miracle worker, uptown girls, and the devil wears Prada. Hello. Yay. We're recording in a brand new space today. We won't say where we are. It's a mystery. <laughs> yeah, um, the place we normally record doesn't have AC, and that's normally fine, but we're getting into the summer and it's real hot, so we had to find a new place that had quiet air conditioning. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I feel more comfortable. I do too. So, we're talking about three amazing movies this week. Amazing movies, Sam. How much fun did you have this week watching these movies? It was just a delight. It was so delightful. (laughs) They were three delightful movies. I think my favorite thing that they all have in common, besides, like, the subject matter and that they're all about mentors, is the fact that all three of these movies are so inconsistent to the culture that we think of them with. Yeah. That's my favorite thing, is that watching these movies again, or some, some of them for the first time... I had, like, a huge slice of humble pie. I feel like that's so typical to movies about women. Totally. That's, that's going to be a big theme on this podcast yeah. for almost every episode. Is what is the culture around this movie, and does it really deserve that culture? I think all three of these movies are far better than I sort of thought they would have been based yeah. on the cult- the way that we talk about them in culture. I'm not going to reference Rotten Tomatoes often mm-hmm. or probably at all, but it stuck out to me mm-hmm. that Uptown Girls has a rating of 13% <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes. Great. Disappointing. That's insane. Especially because every single person I mention this movie to has a moment of, oh. It's more Uptown Girls than the other two. Yeah. Miracle Worker is, like, the Oscar movie of these three. Devil Wars Prada is probably the most famous. And, like, the cult favorite. Yeah, yeah, like, the most modern. But when I mention these three movies to people this week, it's Uptown Girls that they all get excited about. Yeah. We're talking about mentors this week. What what does that word mean to you? That's a really good question. I feel like I've had two kinds of mentors. I've had mentors who I've learned from their example that I've witnessed them being amazing at what they do. And so that's sort of irrelevant from their particular relationship with me that I just observed them and saw them being the kind of person that I wanted to emulate. And that could even be like a boss that I was scared of or, you know, when I had an internship, people who just really knew what they were doing were above me who I may not even talk to anymore. I do consider that a form of a mentorship. Hmm. And then you have mentors who it's the relationship with them. It's the fact that they believed in you and cared about you, that you ended up believing in yourself because you took this older person's word that you were worth something. Mm -hmm. And I think both types of mentors are incredibly valuable. What's interesting about these movies is that the relationship in all three of them is secondary to the work that needs to be done. I think it's really exciting how in The Miracle Worker and in The Devil Wears Prada, these are women who have their shit to do. They have something to do. And that's just exciting. All three of the mentor figures in these three movies are women who are just trying to be good at their job. Yes. Amen. I love that. Yeah. In addition, we're going to explore the arc of these three relationships. But what immediately stands out to me is that all three begin in antagonism and then they end in respect. Yeah. Through the task that they have to do, they realize that they cannot be combatant to each other the entire time. They have to find a way of like cohesive harmony to work together. I would argue that the work only gets done once that respect is formed. I think it's also really exciting that in all of these movies, there is this real sort of fierce challenge of the mentor by the younger character who really questions their methods, even though they are supposed to have the higher status the whole time. And in all three of them, that status is like really challenged. Mm. I think it's not challenged as much in the Devil Wars Prada, but in the first two, there are times when you really, really question who has the upper hand. In The Miracle Worker, I think it switches every two seconds. Yes. It is so not clear who has the status in that movie, which is why it's so fucking good. And in Uptown Girls, I gotta say, I, I know that we, we approach this movie from the perspective of of Molly being the mentor, but I don't know. I really think Ray is the mentor. And we'll, we'll get into that when we talk about Uptown Girls, but... They learn from each other. They learn from each other, but I do think the most important arc in that movie is Molly's. 
Uh-huh. And therefore, I sort of think Molly does take the mentee position because mm. she learns more from Ray than Ray learns from her. I think Molly's circumstances, there was sort of more at stake yes. than for Ray. Because Ray's going to be a CEO. Ray's going to be president anyway. <laughs> you know, so the fact that she learned how to love herself a little bit more and be a kid is so beautiful. But I don't think those stakes were as high as Molly having to really come to terms with her being an adult and, and uh, letting go of her, her grief, letting go of her childhood traumas. Let's start with The Miracle Worker. I feel like I just want to like punch something. I love The Miracle Worker so much. Passionate when I think about it. It's so good. So good. I can't believe how good it was. I know. This was your first time seeing it, right? Yeah. There was this ridiculous made-for-TV movie in the 90s starring Hallie Kate Eisenberg of Bicentennial Man (laughs) and Pepsi fame, who I loved as a kid. So I knew that movie really well. And then I saw The Miracle Worker on Broadway with Alison Pill and mm-hmm. Abigail Breslin, and that was fantastic. But I really wasn't prepared for how good this the original movie was. I really did not anticipate how taken I was going to be with it. It's a perfect movie. Yeah. And then once it was over, I found myself being so confused and disoriented by how inconsistent the movie that I had just watched is with the way I had thought about it or had heard about it in culture. That yeah. it was really sappy and sentimental and romantic. And it was like inspiration porn yeah. for someone with a disability to overcome their disabilities. So it was either like super inspirational or I just remember like 14-year-old boys yeah. making Helen Keller jokes. Exactly. I kept thinking that if this was a movie that like a dashing older man played the Annie character. Right. And then like a young boy played Helen this would be considered one of the great films of all time. Yeah. Not to say that it wasn't tremendously successful when it came out. Like, they both won Oscars for this. Yes, so they did. it wasn't not successful, but now it has a reputation of being really, like, fuzzy. And this is maybe the least fuzzy movie I've ever seen in my life. It is incredibly unsentimental. It's intense. It's dark. It's mean, which is awesome. It's, I, I was watching it thinking that the closest thing that I could relate it to was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Totally. I, so I implore our listeners, like, if, if this week you sort of, you saw that on the ballot and you were like, ah, I think I'll skip that one. Yeah. Don't. It's <laughs> so good. You will not regret watching it. Time just flies by while you were watching this movie. Yeah. It's a truly emotional roller coaster. And I think because it is so different from its reputation, yeah, I think this more than any of the three movies is a film that we would recommend, like, truly take a night get some popcorn get some feminist popcorn get your friends get your partner and actually sit down and watch the actual movie yeah and decide for yourself if you think that the sentimental reputation is worth it or if you're just as shocked as we are so the miracle worker came out in 1962 it was directed by arthur penn who also directed the stage play on Broadway. And it was written by William Gibson based on the same play. And the story, of course, was based on Helen's memoirs of her own life. Anne Bancroft plays Annie Sullivan, and Patty Duke plays Helen Keller. And they give such amazing performances. This goes back to our first episode of saying what it is specifically we are interested in movies. And just me subjectively, I want to have like an emotionally violent experience. I want to feel like my body's shaking with <laughs> with stress and catharsis. Yeah. And that is exactly what this film does. I was stressed the entire time in only the most amazing ways. Yeah. Talk about an emotionally violent movie. Talk about a violent movie. It is a violent movie. Yeah. Helen knocks a baby out of its bassinet. She smacks Annie constantly. Annie smacks Helen. It's a movie about two women wrestling. Yeah. That was very surprising, and I loved it. You just think about how many hours it took for them to choreograph. I was so, like, my, like, theater school brain was (laughs) on fire watching that stage combat. I was like, yes, forward roll. Yes, hair grab. (laughs) It was so intricate. The the dining room scene, it's a full 10-minute 
stage combat scene no with no dialogue. All physical acting by the actors. That scene is just like a perfect microcosm of what this movie is as a whole. Mm. It is so succinctly told. Mm. Every line of dialogue is necessary because there aren't a lot of lines of dialogue because most of yeah. the movie is silent. It's a pretty quiet movie. I was surprised by that too. So, so much of the storytelling is told physically. The physicality in this movie is so necessary Mm -hmm. for the storytelling because the story itself is about the fight to communicate. Mm. Helen isn't able to hear or see, so that leaves three senses. It leaves taste, smell, and touch. Mm. She knows the smell of every person in her family individually. She knows the taste of her favorite foods, but her main sense is touch. She uses touch to make her way around her world with her hands spread wide before her. And she uses touch to manipulate the people around her. Absolutely, and to show them who's boss. Uh Uh-huh. And so it's necessary for Annie to use that same mode of communication back with her. I think that's also to empathize with Helen. Absolutely. That she experiences the world through touch, so the film's entryway into telling the story is through touch. There's really incredible close-ups of their hands. When Helen meets Annie for the first time, you see her hands just, like, move so delicately over Annie's body because this is how she meets people. And I think the reason there's not a lot of dialogue is because... Yeah, why would Annie be speaking in that moment exactly. to, a, to a deaf child? They don't talk down to the audience while they're telling the story. They yeah. don't They don't have dialogue that wouldn't be necessary anyway because Helen can't hear it. No, instead they explore the characters' experiences through ways that they are actually experiencing it. Like one of my favorite things about this movie is the cinematography. They express the characters' experiences in ways that the characters themselves are actually experiencing it. Mm-hmm. So you have different shots overlapping on the screen to signify memory, because that's how they would see memory. Annie's memories in particular are very blurry Yeah, to reflect her actual vision at the time when she was a child, because she she was mostly blind as a child and had these series of surgeries to improve her vision. So when she looks back and, and remembers visions of her childhood, they're blurry. I think the movie expresses what it is to see in really, really beautiful ways. That because Helen doesn't have access to what even the concept of language is, understanding the world and seeing the world looks different and it feels different. Right. So that's why there's always the close-up of hands or we see Helen with her arms stretched out to infinity trying to grasp as much of the world as she can. Yes. Because we have to empathize as an audience with someone who sees the world in a different way. And I think the movie is so respectful to Helen. It doesn't talk down to her, unlike the rep the culture we were just talking about right. that really minimizes and condescends to Helen Keller. This movie shows her instead for the like willful bitch that she was as a child, which I lived for. I thought it was incredible to make her so bratty. Well, here's our doctrine, what we look for in great movies about women that we've said from the very beginning, we want to see flawed characters because they're human. When you take a historical figure like Helen Keller and you deify her, you make her perfect, mm. you strip that humanity from her and then she's she's no longer a human being to mm. us. When you give her back her humanity, when you make her such a spoiled brat in this movie, <laughs> it gives her her dignity back. It gives her that dignity of being human being. I was so obsessed with how so much of what this film was saying is that one's biggest disability in life is not a physical handicap, but it's pity and yes. it's never having been disciplined. It's that people who are differently abled are not held to the same standards because people take pity on them. Yes. And that is more damaging. It was more damaging to Helen than the fact that she was blind or deaf. There's a line that says her biggest handicap is her mother's love and pity. She was so spoiled. And to think, I don't know, to think that a movie would take a figure as famous as Helen Keller and be like, let's make her a total brat. I think just takes such courage and so yeah, it's so exciting. And Annie as well. Uh-huh. Annie takes no bullshit in this movie. She's a tough lady. One of my favorite lines is when Annie asks the father, haven't you ever cut supplies, Captain? And he said, well, this isn't war. And she said, it's not love. Yeah. I, was, I just thought that was so smart. 
funny. She is so honest. Yeah. To the point of impoliteness. Yeah. Which today would be empowering. Right. But back then it looked like she was being difficult. When she tells the story of her childhood in the asylum. Yeah. When we were discussing this movie a few days ago, you had asked if I thought that she was honest about that experience or if she was just trying to scare the parents. Yeah, I didn't really know. My answer to that is that she is 100% completely honest Mm. because what I imagine is that dishonesty in her mind is what makes polite society what Mm. it is. That polite society is telling sweet little lies and euphemisms to cover up the gritty truth. And it's what was on the way to ruining Helen. Right. Yeah. One of my other favorite moments in the whole movie is after the big giant fight and Annie comes out and she and Helen are both traumatized. And Annie goes, the room is a wreck, but her napkin is folded. (laughs) And you think that that's sort of going to be the climactic line of that scene. Like you think, oh, it was a punchline. It was a funny moment of Annie being really fierce. And then she walks away. And then William Gibson, the writer, tops himself and gives the mother this devastating moment where she starts crying and she says my Helen folded her napkin yeah and you realize that Annie's achievement is actually not like wasn't the point of that scene the scene was the mother and Helen and I just thought that was such it was such good writing that you think the scene is going to end in one place and then it just tops itself Mm -hmm. the mother is a really interesting character I friggin love the mother the parents for most of the movie, to me, are defined by their disrespect of Helen. Like, the fact that they don't discipline her, it's so sadly unwittingly disrespectful, but disrespectful to not give your child the benefit of the doubt that they're smart, that they can learn, that they can understand. She learns so fast, and that's so satisfying to me, but she's like a genius in this movie. She picks up on things really, really quickly. She She has has nuances that other children wouldn't have gotten. She has a sense of, she has a fully functioning sense of humor. (laughs) She plays a prank on Annie in the first few scenes of meeting her. She locks her in a room, she throws away the key, and then she laughs about it. She tests the parents in the one of the final scenes. Yes. She tests them to see if they are going to be as easy on her as they used to be before Annie came. That's a manipulative little child. That's yeah. incredible. And the final moments of this movie that are so gorgeously done. We've seen the key a couple of times in the movie. We've seen we've seen Helen lock Annie in and throw away the key, imprisoning her. The way that Helen is already imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And so in this final moment, when she takes the key out of her mother's pocket and she holds it out to Annie and creates this metaphor (laughs) like already she's learned a few words and she already understands like she's already able to conceptualize a metaphor (laughs) she basically says to Annie this is you teacher is key to unlocking her from her prison and that was it was so it's so good it's so beautiful you and I are obviously very like emotional people just by nature anyway but like when I think about this movie too hard I just get emotional yeah (laughs) It also made me really sort of take a step back in my own life and process the value of a word, just one word. Yeah. That Annie can only teach her one word at a time. She can only teach her individual words because they haven't yet worked up their way into sentences or concepts. And so as I was watching the movie, I was like, God, the privilege of knowing a language, the privilege of knowing millions of words And placing them in a certain order to express what's going on with you, what's going on in your head, to communicate. I was just so humbled and moved by that. that now I was thinking about every word I know. And I was like, even just putting sentences together is such a profound gift that human beings have. And um, I think that goes back to, you know, I want to feel differently about the world when I'm done watching a movie or done watching a play. I don't think I've ever quite appreciated words, individual words, the way I did when I watched this movie. Again, if it wasn't based on real life, you'd think it was... You'd it's think too it good was to be true. Too, exactly. <laughs> that The word that's the key for her is water. That water is this, like, sustenance of life. Yeah. In movies, it, it's constantly used to symbolize 
rebirth and yeah. new life. But the true story is that she she put her hands under the water spout and she understood the word water. She understood that a thing had a name yeah. for the first time in her life and it changed her entire world. Yeah. And that she had a name and that everything she's ever known in her life has right. a name. And to think that she went through the first six years of her life not knowing that she had a name. Exactly. And that she had an identity. And so it's only in that moment that she learns the concept of respect. Mm. Because only things that have names can have respect. Absolutely. That's the only way, the only way to respect something is to call it by its proper name. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you look through history and you see sort of historical moments of oppression, what's something that always happens is that your name is taken from you. Yeah, exactly. And so Helen had been oppressed by her disability until Annie took that oppression away from her, no matter how difficult it was to make that happen. The movie ends with love. After this full fight, that the whole movie is one single fight that finally culminates in a breakthrough, it ends in this moment of tender affection. And what I liked about that was because if you learn anything about the real Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller, you find out that they were companions for another 50 years. Mm. Annie would later teach Helen how to speak mm. and would assist her in writing her memoirs. Mm. They had this lifelong relationship. The final scene is a reflection or sort of like a bridge into the sequel of this movie, of this mm. experience, which is the rest of their lives together. Yeah. Well, the last thing I'll say about why I love The Miracle Worker is that it starts from a place of someone not having any relationship to discipline and then you seeing them grow up and mature through that understanding of what discipline is and I think that's also why I love Uptown Girls I think the Miracle Worker and Uptown Girls have that in common except in Uptown Girls it flips and the person who has never experienced discipline is the nanny is the older person mm. is the person who's supposed to be mentoring the younger person who in this case Ray is far more disciplined in fact perhaps too disciplined Let's talk about Uptown Girls. I love this movie so much. After all these years, it still has the same emotional effect on me that it did when I was a child. Mm. I was sobbing at the end <laughs> of this movie. And that's the first time in this podcast that I've cried watching a movie. Mm. So I don't know what it is about Uptown Girls in particular. Uh, maybe I just relate to the character of Molly so much. Mm. But the final scene just hits me in a very deeply emotional way. Yeah. I think when people think of this movie, if they've seen it before, they yeah. think of the final scene. They yeah. think of the performance. Yeah. The performance and the teacups. Oh, yeah. The spinning teacups. That's when I start to cry, <laughs> is when they're at the carnival and they're yeah. going round and round in the teacups. And then I, I continue crying into the final scene at the dance recital and... As soon as the song starts, yeah. that's when the, the, that's when the waterfall starts. When I told my mom we were gonna watch Uptown Girls, she said the teacups. Yeah, she like immediately got like upset because she thought of how powerful that scene is. It's such a gorgeously written metaphor. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So Uptown Girls was released in 2003. It's directed by Boaz Yakin. It's written by four people. Julia Dahl, Mo Ogrodnik, Lisa Davidowitz, and Allison Jacobs. And it stars Brittany Murphy as Molly and Dakota Fanning as Ray. One of my absolute favorite things about the structure of this movie, yeah. it actually reminded me a lot of the structure of Harry Potter. If you read the first <laughs> few books of Harry Potter... They read very much like children's books. Obviously, the stakes feel high, but not nearly as high as like the last three books. The books mature in their quality of writing as Harry ages and Harry matures. This film does the same thing. It starts in one world. It starts as this sort of quirky rom-com. You think that Neil is going to be like the second lead character of the film. It starts off with Molly being very committed to making this relationship work and staying in her wealthy princess bubble, you think that the film is going to be this one thing. And then as she gets to know Ray and Ray's family, and she comes to terms with her own childhood traumas of her own family, the film takes a really dark turn and suddenly becomes this very dramatic movie. And that transition being proportionate to Molly 
getting more mature, the film getting more mature, I think is just stunning. The film opens with this song. It's a charmed life. It does so much storytelling. It reminded me of the beginning of Legally Blonde. Sure. It's a perfect day. It's that same kind of fairy tale optimism that... Good morning, Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. That is a little foreboding, (laughs) you know, because if you're starting your movie in that kind of place, you know that it's, it's about to go downhill. And we're introduced to Molly's entire life in that one opening sequence. Yeah. We see her incredible apartment, <laughs> her really eccentric taste in art and fashion. Yeah. And we see a lobby full of gifts for her. That she doesn't even care that about. That she suggests be donated right away. That yeah. she she has everything she needs in the entire world. She doesn't even need to look through these gifts. <laughs> and we also see that she is creative. We see her take this little lampshade and put it in her hair as a hair accessory. We see that she has innovative thought that maybe is lying under the surface. Right, that she's not focusing on. Yeah, that she doesn't really need to utilize, but like has access to. And then she goes to this party where she is just the princess on top of the world. Yeah. And she spots a guy and she's like, he's mine. I'm just going to conquer that. Mm-hmm. Who I absolutely did not recognize when I was a kid was sober and was celibate at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film. That he's made all these commitments to himself at the beginning of the movie that Molly sort of bulldozes through in her way. And I found their relationship throughout the whole movie so interesting. Yeah. Way more interesting than I remembered it to be. Sure. That she sort of takes control of him in a way that is a little intimidating to him. But then really fast, he takes advantage of her. And the two of them battle each other in an interesting way. I'm really interested in her little arcs when we see her in the bathtub talking to her friend saying, this guy won't leave me. This guy won't leave my apartment. Yeah. And then in the next second, she leaves the bathroom and she's begging him not to go. Right. Right. She has this childish kind of need for love and attention yeah. that regardless of her personal feelings for this guy, which seems to be that he annoys her. <laughs> or that le- at the very least are inconsistent. Yeah. She can't let go of the idea of someone not loving her. Yeah. So the true threat in that moment when he's leaving, it's not that she's like obsessed with him and she can't live without him. It's that she needs that validation because she's been lonely all her life. Yeah. And that's, of course, what ends up being the bridge between her and Ray is that common loneliness, that common need for someone to show affection to you. Actually, another thing about this movie that I had never realized when I was younger, one of my, again, my favorite things about it is that it explores the consequences of giving too much wealth to a child. Of having, of giving a child too much access to wealth and how they use that to fill in holes for discipline, for creativity, for friendship, for self-respect. They use their money to fill these things in. And I think that's one of the fundamental components that bonds Ray and Molly is that they both... They're both so wealthy. They're both too wealthy. They use money in ways that they should have used other people for or, or themselves for. And I never realized that that's what the title Uptown Girls was referring to. That they're both, like, wealthy girls on the Upper West Side. Yeah. I think Molly's from the Upper West Side and Ray is from the Upper East Side. But they're uptown. Yeah. In this land of wealth and Mm. privilege. Yeah. And their, their childhoods are so reflective of that. Yeah. I remember there were kids that I went to high school with who, even in high school, even when I was, like, you know, a dope and didn't know anything about the world, I could recognize in them that they were troubled because of how wealthy they were Mm -hmm. and that their money might destroy them one day and they won't really know how to function as real people Mm -hmm. because they weren't raised their parents just were never around or they were raised by nannies who didn't really care or whatever one of the best lines in the movie i think is when molly makes it clear to ray's mother that she has no idea who her daughter is Because where is the mother? She's off living this sort of glamorous career. I also think that not only Molly's wealth, but her gender plays a huge role in the way that she grew out of her childhood. I think they sort of insinuate that there was never any kind of expectation that she would grow up and have a career. Mm. I think some families at that level of wealth 
if you have a girl, you just sort of like, you allow them to be happy as a child and then eventually get married to another wealthy man and live life that way. If Molly was a boy, I wonder if even before her parents' death, there would have been more attention paid to her, her education and her interests and yeah. and she would be set on a path that would lead to a career rather than the life that she's living now, which is just living off of her parents' wealth and having a good time. Yeah, absolutely. I think what we had touched on earlier that I want to come back to is the incredible dichotomy between Molly being older and having this sort of glamorous, carefree lifestyle, but Ray being the one who really knows how to take care of herself, or at least seemingly knows how to take care of herself. And Molly has to mature immediately just to keep up with Ray. Yeah. Not even to be a nanny in general, but specifically this child who is so mature, like too mature. And I love that they help each other grow into what it means to be an adult and to be a strong woman. And it's not just one older person to a younger person, but that Ray has a great deal to do with why Molly grows up. Yeah. I love Ray's character. She broke my heart because I feel like I either was that little girl or I knew a lot of little girls like that who resented being children and just wanted to have control and were so scared of being vulnerable and so scared of being weak that that's why that scene with the teacups is so powerful to me. It's because it's the first time Ray allows herself to be a scared little girl because she's seen Molly being a scared little girl this whole time and she's repulsed by it. Mm-hmm. And they get to be scared little girls together for a moment. And it's it's really, really beautiful. And I relate to Molly sure. in the same way because that's been one of my major journeys sure. in growing into an adult is sort of pushing down that part of me that wants to be childish and girlish mm-hmm. and young in order to, you know, get people to like me and, yeah. and get them to, like, help me. Yeah. I know this isn't a podcast for TV shows, but I think you and I have talked about why we love Buffy so much, and it's because Buffy has this great way of being feminine and, and girl and with a cutesy sense of humor while also like taking names. Right. And a lot of movies like Uptown Girls explore how in reality that's incredibly difficult mm. and no one gives women the space to be both. Right. That no one really was asking Molly what she was capable of. Right. And Neil didn't really know what Molly was capable of. He went into this relationship thinking that she was just going to be this manic pixie dream girl who would inspire him and then he would leave in the dust. I'm so glad you said manic pixie dream girl because I was thinking the exact same thing watching this movie that Molly is that manic pixie dream girl character except that this is her movie. Yeah. So we're able to see the reasons why she is the way she is because they help her manipulate people. They help her get what she wants. Help her distract her from her own grief. And that it's all a reflection of her trauma. Yeah. And it's an act. It's performative. Mm -hmm. It's not real. Just in case you don't know what the term Manic Pixie Dream Girl is referring to, we'll give a quick (laughs) 101. Manic Pixie Dream Girl refers to this trope of a female character in kind of cute romantic movies. Or coming of age movies. About men. Yeah. About usually like a young, sad man whose life has changed when he meets this amazing girl who's eccentric and quirky and usually has some like inner darkness that you don't really explore. It's there for her to look cool. Right. The point is that you never really delve far into her character. Her character is merely there to serve the plot of the male character. To help him see the beauty and the spirit of the world. Right. I feel like every movie where there's a manic pixie dream girl, their relationship is not actually the core of the male character's arc. The manic pixie dream girl is a vessel for him to learn something else about himself. Like Mm. a, a real core truth about his childhood trauma or him needing to grow up. Are you interested in Neil's arc at the end? I'm interested in the fact that he goes back and makes this effort to be there for her, but only because I genuinely don't think they're going to get together after that. Yeah, I agree. I think if they, if we saw them kiss at the end... It would be super weird. It'd be a way worse movie. I think the fact that he went back, gave her this gift of this moment yeah. to say thank you. And sorry. Sorry thank I took you advantage and I'm of sorry. you. Thank you and I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And... 
that'll be it probably. Yeah. That'll probably be the end of their relationship. I think that's great. Yeah. I think he also just simply wanted to show her that he bought the guitars. Yeah. And how else could he have done that without making it seem like he wanted her back? But the fact that he presented these guitars to her in a context that involved Ray meant that it really was about Molly. Yeah. And it wasn't about him. That's really interesting. That song, man. It's so good. Dakota Fanning is devastating in her little tutu. I also love that you finally hear those lyrics at the end of the movie. The idea of the song weighs on the movie the entire time, but you never really hear it. You just know that it has this emotional effect on her. Mm -hmm. And then once you hear it, just the fact that it's Molly Smiles, to me, what that meant was that is, it's like this magic spell, kind of, Mm -hmm. that Molly has been under since her parents died like that's her father's vision of her and she's had to live up to that vision for the rest of her life wow that's really interesting i never to keep smiling to keep spinning around and being that yeah being this princess Mm. oh god that's so unfair for her to have to live up to that and then it sort of comes full circle i mean you see the burden that that has put on her through most of the movie but then at the end it it does come full circle you see ray and neil say no this is what your smile does to people right You, you do create magic it's not just this burden that your dad put on you that now has sort of put you in this direction of being a manic pixie dream girl but you are a magical, special person. And it's such a gift to Ray. Yeah. Who, for the entire movie, Dakota Fanning, what a yeah. stellar performance. She's unbelievable in this movie. She doesn't crack a smile <laughs> the entire movie yeah. until that final moment when she smiles at Molly in the audience. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> It's the first time you've seen that little face smile for an hour and a half. Yeah. (laughs) And so, and she's free. She's in her tutu that Molly made. Yeah. Her mom helped her get into it. God. That's the magic that Molly does. She brings other people together. She gets her mom backstage. It's so good. (laughs) It's such a perfect, perfect scene. We usually just talk about actors in terms of the performances they give in these individual movies, but because of Brittany Murphy dying so young, I do want to just give a minute to talk about how I think Brittany Murphy is one of the most talented actors of her time. Mm. And I think she's a great example of what we've been talking about in pretty much every episode, that reputations are so inconsistent from the quality when it's related to women. I'm really shocked that Brittany Murphy isn't considered one of the most talented actors of her mm. time. And I, it's so sad to me that we don't have more performances from her because I think she's the performance she gives in this movie is unbelievable she imbued her work with so much vulnerability and deep honest truth yeah the scenes in this movie that could just be cute right are so nuanced when she returns to her empty apartment and she looks around the look of devastation on her face that it's really setting in that she's homeless yeah that her entire life has changed has been taken away from her There are scenes with her and her friend Aang that are very simply written scenes, Mm -hmm. like when Aang asks her to leave her apartment because she's been a nuisance. Both those actresses have tears in their eyes during that scene. Yeah. They feel the weight of that sacrifice, that their friendship is on the line. Yeah. Their friendship also rang really true to me about friendships that you make when you're a kid and that make sense when you're a kid and then you grow up and your friendship doesn't really make a lot of sense anymore, but you hold on to it because it's this incredibly important person in your life. I have so many friends from childhood like that, that if we met today, there's no reason we would be friends. We'd be in each other's lives. But because of our history, we owe something to each other. And I could tell that with Ingrid and Molly that they were so different, but they were bonded together. They were infused together to be soulmates. And I really loved that. I think just the two of them have really great chemistry, too, the two actors. I also loved her relationship with Huey. Yeah. That she has this platonic relationship with a straight man (laughs) who ends up being, I think, her best friend. Mm. He gets her the job in the first place, and he offers to let her stay at his place indefinitely. That's another thing that I really appreciated, that Molly makes the choice in the end to get her own apartment, to live on her own, even though she has these other options. She realizes that it's necessary for her to be financially independent and to make the step for herself. 
Maybe that's what I was referring to earlier when I said that Molly's arc felt like it had higher stakes than Ray's, because where Molly was at the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie feels way more fundamentally different right. than, than where Ray is. And then when she applies to go to fashion school, yeah. I really appreciated this, <laughs> that the interviewer says... You don't need to be here. You don't, yeah, you have these famous parents, you have connections, you could get a job in a major fashion house easily. Yeah, yeah. And she makes the clear decision to go to school. Based on a motto she's learned from Ray. Right. <laughs> I want to talk about Ray's arc and how at the beginning of the movie, Ray thinks that handling something and being responsible and being mature really just means denying emotion, mm -hmm. denying vulnerability, denying really being present somewhere. It's as if she's sort of dead inside at the beginning of the movie, particularly in relation to her father, who's sick in the next room, who she just ignores and just basically moves on from. And when Molly challenges her to be open to having feelings about her father being sick, that's when Ray's arc really starts to go into an interesting place. And, and Ray opens a door to herself that she had always had closed. I just think that's a really important distinction that the movie makes, that it's not that Ray was more emotionally mature than Molly. She wasn't. She was just in denial. She was just completely repressed. And Molly makes her open up that door to being vulnerable and to being mm -hmm. scared and to and to grieve. The teacup scene. Whoa. It's such a gorgeous visual metaphor. Spinning round and round and round and round yeah. and round and round and round in these childish little teacups until you throw up and Ugh. then you get back on and you do it again. I keep thinking about what it must have taken both logistically and emotionally to film that. Hmm. That they must have had to sit in those damn cups <sighs> for like a day just like crying and staring at the camera. Like they must have been in a teacup with a cameraman across from them, both yeah. of them. And they just had to film that until they, they got it right. And that seems pretty damn challenging. I'm also just a huge fan in filmmaking in general when they use actors looking straight into the camera to express an emotional intimacy. Hmm. Um, you see that in Silence of the Lambs. You see that in Moonlight. I love when actors look into the camera. <laughs> I just think there's something so exciting about making direct eye contact with an actor hmm. when you know that they're looking at their scene partner. They're looking at the person across from them. Right. But you feel like you're there with them. It's just really good cinematography. Amazing movie. I think we've covered it. Love it. Whew. The Devil Wears Prada. What a movie. What a movie. So The Devil Wears Prada came out in 2006. It was directed by David Frankel. No relation. No relation. And it was written by Aline Brosh McKenna, based on the book by Lauren Weisberger. It stars Meryl Streep as Miranda Priestly and Anne Hathaway as Andy. I think this is another movie, third in a row, where its reputation is inconsistent with the movie itself. I'm going to be totally honest. I didn't know what to expect going into this. Yeah. Because I have not had a good relationship with this movie in the past. Huh. I thought that it was sort of secretly celebrating the parts of the fashion industry that had caused me pain in my childhood and, and caused people pain all the time. Sure. And watching it this week, I realized just how incredibly wrong all of that is. And this is a really intentional, smart movie about the fashion industry, examining all the interesting and empowering and also incredibly toxic parts of the fashion industry. Yeah. It's a criticism in a lot of ways. Yeah. I don't think I knew that as a kid because I don't think the culture of the film talks about that. I think from the get-go, it's a criticism. Mm. I think because the clothes are so beautiful, mm. like the costume design is so amazing in this movie, maybe is the only thing that is sort of celebrating the fashion industry. But we do get these serious moments of criticism when we discuss, like, Emily's eating disorder and all of these characters at one point or another reference Andy's weight, which is ridiculous. Yeah. But it's real. I think what I was so taken by this time around watching it that I was so pleasantly surprised by is that at the core, I don't think this movie is about a celebration or critique of sure. the fashion industry. It's about ambition. It's about women being ambitious. And that completely surpasses the specific industry that this film depicts. It's about the sacrifices, the moral ambiguities of a woman being 
crazy dead ambitious. Yeah. Both Miranda and Andy. That's the interesting piece of culture around this movie that I want to explore is Miranda's character. And how she's this like famous villain. Yeah, exactly. She's the devil. Yeah. Right? She (laughs) is the devil. Yeah. But is she or is she simply as Andy puts it kind of late in the film, is she just doing her job really well in a way that any other male CEO does that nobody is able to comment on because right. it's so normal? I mean, I think the distinction the film makes towards the end, the sort of moral that it makes that I really appreciate, is that being ambitious is not a sin. It's not a bad thing. Being a dick is a sin. You know, like being a mean person who screws over your friends, that's bad. Yeah. But working your ass off until your fingers bleed Getting to work at 6 a.m., leaving at midnight, if this is what you love and this is the industry you care about, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, Mazel tov. And I think that's really great that the film celebrates that. But it does clarify that Miranda, if she's in any way villainous, it's not because she works so hard. It's because she's she's mean. She's mean to the people around her. Sure. That was actually something that I noticed pretty early in the film that everyone, when they talk about this movie, they always talk about Andy. They talk about her running with the coffee or about her getting the Harry Potter books. They're always talking about how hard Andy works. I've never quite appreciated so much how hard Miranda works for this entire movie. She is the hardest working person in this movie. Like, there's a reason she's Miranda Priestly. Because she kills herself for her job and I so respect that. They're always coming in at like six in the morning because Miranda's coming in early (laughs) to do her job. Yeah. Everyone has to keep up with her and I think that that's great. I included this movie in the Mentors episode for a reason. It's because I want to vindicate Miranda that she's not this villain character. She has so much to teach Andy. Andy learns work ethic. She really learns what that means in this movie when she arrives we see her first interview she is so full of it she is this smug college graduate who thinks that she's gonna move to new york city and just get her dream job right off the bat she goes into interview at a top magazine and she doesn't even know the name of the person that she's interviewing to work for she doesn't know anything about the magazine she's totally unprepared for this interview and so like what does she what does she think is gonna happen yeah i don't judge emily at all for the way she responds to andy And I don't judge Miranda's reaction either. I don't either. One of the most ridiculous moments in the movie to me, for, well, let's not even get started on Nate right now, but <laughs> Nate has a line where he says, you used to live with integrity and now you're just like obsessed with your job, which I found so hilariously backwards. No, she didn't have integrity and now she takes her job seriously. She learns when to come in on time, how hard she should work. That's taking your job seriously with integrity. She hasn't lost integrity. She like has learned how to be a grown up employee. That is the main thing that when Andy makes the choice at the end of the movie to leave, she chooses to leave not out of weakness, not because she's like quitting this job that she can't handle. Mm. She leaves because it doesn't align with her morals anymore. Right. And I think that's a really amazing distinction. That's why also I don't quite understand Andy's two moments of weakness at the end of the film where she A, apologizes to Nate, and then B, in her interview, he says, you know, what happened? Why did you leave less than a year? And she says, I screwed it up. And I was so sad thinking that that was like one of her final lines of the movie, because in reality, what she should have said was, I surpassed the assistant ahead of me. I became the first assistant in less than a year. I went to Paris. I was the best assistant that Miranda ever had. But ultimately, our moral values did not line up. And I wanted to go work in a place where my values lined up with my boss. That's a totally legit thing to say. You know what? I wonder if those lines are there because they're followed up by the true completion of Andy's arc, which is when she learns that Miranda has sent a good reference. Oh. So you think in like the next interview Andy has, once she learns that Miranda has championed her, that she'll reevaluate her experience and say, oh yeah, I was a great assistant. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I that was something I just really noticed this time around watching it, that Andy passes the assistant ahead of her. 
in terms of value to Miranda. Yes. So that's Emily, mm-hmm. played by Emily Blunt, in honestly what I consider one of her greatest roles. <laughs> I think she is so, she is... It's very funny. She is so perfect. <laughs> I related to Emily so much. Oh. Regardless of the fact that she's like so mean and she's... Right. Whatever. Emily is someone who is so passionate about her job. She cares so much about fashion. And here's this person who comes in with no experience and no interest Mm -hmm. in what she's doing Mm -hmm. and succeeds because of that. Mm. And Emily is literally killing herself to go to Paris. She makes herself sick. She gets hit by a car. We watch her like deteriorate because she cares so much and the fact that Andy doesn't care, yeah, I think is what pushes her ahead and, and what makes her valuable in Miranda's eyes. I think it's a mixture of both, though, because I don't think it's Andy's lack of interest that makes Miranda excited about her. I think it's the fact that she has an arc within the movie. She has a mini arc of I don't care to I'm going to care because I'm going to make the best use of this job. She only starts getting interest from Miranda after she's made that transition, after she's made that transformation into really taking the job seriously. Yeah. Everything that makes Emily worthy of being an assistant, Andy eventually does. Like, Andy does take an interest in fashion. She does want to impress Miranda. She does come in really early. Like, everything that validates Emily as a great assistant, Andy does that eventually, and then more, and and better. Mm-hmm. And, like, earns that surpassing. But I think it's always because this job for Andy is temporary. I don't think it becomes temporary later on in the movie. Really? Yeah. I think she gets caught up in it. I think she learns to like it. I think Andy always has in the back of her mind that she's gonna eventually be a journalist. But even so, what's wrong with that. Because Emily wants this. Right, but that doesn't mean she's more entitled to it than Andy, just because she wants it. The person who's best for the job is entitled to it. All I mean is that I understand her sadness. It's hard to see other people succeeding in your profession who have less passion for it than you do. I also think it's really great at the end of the movie that Miranda recommends Andy to her next job, not because she respects the fact that Andy quit in this really dramatic way. What I do think is interesting is that Miranda recommends her simply for the fact that Andy was fantastic at her job. And Miranda sees the world in it seems like a very black and white way of like you do your job you're worthy to be in the same room as me if you're not good at your job I don't have time for you and the fact that Andy was so good at her job I think made Miranda just respect her and we were saying how the arc of these three films is going from sort of combating each other to respect and I think when Andy proved herself as a good assistant Miranda was willing to forgive pretty much everything else yeah one thing that really grinds my gears in this movie it's not a fault of the movie it's a good thing but how insensitive her friends are, and her boyfriend Nate is. Her friends are the her worst. Career. They're the they're the worst. Also, are they all supposed to be like twenty three years old? Because <laughs> they're the oldest twenty three year olds I've ever seen. <laughs> but one of the most deliciously ironic scenes is when she's with all her friends at the bar, and they're taking all the toys. Right, Andy has all these like new toys, all these new goodies from Miranda's office. They're all they're all so excited about the purse and the phone. And then Miranda calls and they they take Andy's phone from her, like playing with her as if Andy is this slave to Miranda, which I find just so ridiculous. You are benefiting from how hard Andy is working. You see Andy killing herself and you're going to mock her for that? For what reason that she's 22 and she has a job that she needs to be good at? Like it just it made no sense. A lot of the criticism of women in this movie is about how hard they work (laughs) which is crazy (laughs) well that's one of the major theses of the movie i think is like a woman who's good at her job that doesn't necessarily make her a devil no and i think that's what the movie does really really successfully is that it draws a line between working really hard and then not being a good person right And, and it doesn't say that one equals the other Although, like, at the end of the day, the kind of, like, feminist icon of this movie is Miranda. It's not Andy. Right, but I don't think that's because Miranda screws people out of jobs. I think it's because she's a badass bitch who, like, takes names and works really, really hard and knows exactly what she's talking about. She's also, I mean, a lot of it has to do with Meryl Streep's performance. Yeah. That we're, like, watching in awe of this performance. She delivers all her lines in a whisper. I read that Meryl Streep got that from Clint Eastwood. Mm. That when she's working with Clint Eastwood, he speaks so quietly that everyone has to whisper down to to, to talk to him. And to lean in to hear him, yeah. (laughs) It immediately creates power. 
Right. But yeah, I think it's a lot to do with Meryl Streep. But it's also to do with the fact that, like, this is the kind of, like, powerful, sort of evil female character that we said that we wanted to see in movies. Mm -hmm. We want to see a Michael Corleone. We want to see a... Who backsteps people. Right. She's Michael Douglas in Wall Street. Yeah. The two sort of iconic Miranda Priestly scenes, in my opinion, are, number one, her monologue about Cerulean. Everyone's obsessed with that scene. Which is really all about how, A, good she is at her job. She speaks with such power and expertise. Mm -hmm. And it also has to do with her power over this entire industry, over the entire fashion industry. Yeah. That all of those decisions, that that like trickle-down effect that she's talking about, Mm -hmm. it all starts with the people in this room. AKA, it AKA starts with me. me. It starts with me. So know who you work for. Right. That she feels the weight of the entire fashion industry on her shoulders. Mm, yeah. And then following that up with the reveal of her her list at the end. Yeah. The list. The list of all of the people mm-hmm. who are loyal to me. Who she made. Who she made. But there is an undertone of like, if they're not loyal to her, she will ruin their careers. Mm. She has the power to do that. Yeah. So there is a kind of sinisterness yeah, absolutely. to it. And I think that's why this film asks such great questions about what it is to be a woman in power. Because, for instance, we hear a lot of the time about famous influential women and what's a huge part of their reputations, right? That they're monsters, that they're really difficult to, to work with. Mm-hmm. I feel like that so often goes hand in hand that we hear that, that if a woman is at the top, it's probably because she was a monster getting there. And maybe there's truth to that in the way that there's truth to that with men in power. Exactly. Or maybe women who are authoritative and are the boss are misinterpreted as being aggressive monsters because they have to be to get anywhere. The other scene that I talked about, that there are two iconic scenes with Miranda, is the scene when she discusses her divorce with Andy. When we find her in her hotel room in a bathrobe with no makeup on her face. That scene gets me every time. She's so vulnerable in that moment. She allows herself to be vulnerable for the first time Mm -hmm. with Andy because she's she's formed this respect with her. She's formed this, this relationship with her. And she allows that vulnerability for just a moment, just long enough, until Andy says, what do you want me to do? And she says, your job. Yeah, and then she flips it back as if Andy has crossed a line. Right. (laughs) But she returns to her true internal drive, which is that what matters most is is succeeding, is power. Is the work. The work, yeah, exactly. That moment really hit me in a way that it never has before because I've had more moments like that with various bosses or employers where they offer me a moment of vulnerability. And as a young dope, I don't always know how to handle it. Like you can see Andy in her eyes, she is floundering for what to say. She does not know how to, whether whether she should be a comfort, whether she should change the subject back to the professionalism. You just see her as this child who doesn't know how to respond to her vulnerable boss. And I, I thought that was done with a lot of care. Now you see these two women who have so much professionalism between them that they don't know how to have a moment of intimacy. Yeah. I certainly related to that. The tone of wanting to please your boss so badly felt very real to me. And I think there's something really important about showing a young woman wanting to impress an older woman and and saying, I'm here too. Here's, here's how I can serve you. Something I just realized was that each of the mentors at some point see a piece of themselves in their student. Yeah. That opens the door to a relationship and to respect. So what I think is so amazing at the end of The Devil Wears Prada is when Miranda says everybody wants to be us. Mm-hmm. That she sort of takes ownership of Andy in that way mm. and is is proud of the influence that she's had on her. That she had the ability, she had the guts to betray her friend, Emily. Yeah, I used to think that moment was about judging Andy or Miranda being like, haha, gotcha. Look, I made you do a bad thing. When in fact, as I watched it this last time, Miranda is celebrating her. Miranda is saying, you have nothing to worry about. You're good. Yeah. Like, you're just like me. We know how to be cutthroat. She's, it's almost like she's offering Andy a bonding moment. Yeah. And Andy 
learns this tremendous thing about herself, which is that she doesn't want that. She doesn't want to have a bonding moment with Miranda about the ability to portray people. And maybe Andy won't be as powerful as Miranda. Because of it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And she's okay with that. Yeah. And it's a choice. Yeah. And I think that in the final moments of the movie when when we do find out that she you know gave andy that good reference Mm -hmm. i think it's because of that piece of herself that she sees in andy yeah it's that she sees that this is a woman like herself who's going into the business world that is run by men Mm -hmm. and she now has the work ethic necessary to conquer that world Yeah, absolutely. And so there's this amazing moment after they see each other across the street Mm -hmm. and Miranda gets into her car and she has a single moment of watching Andy through the window and she sort of smiles at her in this very motherly way with pride. Yeah. And then it passes and and it ends with a joke. But I think that is ultimately the message that the movie wants to leave you with. Yeah, I totally agree. Another great three movies, Sam. Thanks for thanks for choosing three really good movies. Oh. Such a good time this week. Yeah, it was a really fun week. Yeah. I'm super excited for our next episode. Me too. The theme of next episode is best friends. Best friends! <laughs> the first movie is the 2015 indie dramatic comedy Tangerine, about a single day journey of two transgender sex workers through the streets of Hollywood on Christmas Eve. The next film is the 1997 cult classic comedy Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, in which two inseparable best friends prepare to attend their 10-year high school reunion. (laughs) And the third film is the 2016 Chinese drama Soulmate, which chronicles the 18-year friendship of two women from childhood to adulthood made more complicated by first love. Tangerine is available on Netflix. Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion is available for $2.99 from YouTube and Google Play. And Soulmate is only available on Amazon Video for $2.99. You can find links to all of those movies on our website, feministpopcorn.com. And now I'm so happy because I get to share the very best thing about this episode, which is our very first listener voicemail. And this comes from Adrian. I just wanted to leave you guys this message in regards to your coming of age episode. It was like a mini therapy session for me, especially talking about women owning their own bodies. I think as a child and growing through puberty and getting like comments from my mother about the fact that I wanted to wear jeans and saying things like, oh, don't you want to look like a lady? Or you have to wear a dress at least three times a week because, you know, it's feminine or getting comments from my sister about my body as I'm literally going through puberty about like my breasts and I need to make sure I'm always wearing a bra or I need to cover up and as a child you're not I wasn't really aware of like of like I don't know I guess taboos about women's bodies I'm just like okay this is my body it is what it is but I definitely want to let you guys know that you made me cry on the train I literally had to stop listening and like regroup and then finish the episode later that day but it was so worth it so I just want to say thank you guys for this um it's always a special moment when repressed emotions get brought up and I'm able to look at them as an adult and although I did go through a range of emotions from like sad to angry to like having a sense of compassion I think it was very important for me to even look at those situations and realize that you know that I'm really thankful to be at a place where I am now that things like that are just moments from the past so thanks guys Adrian, thank you so much for your voicemail. I think you're absolutely right. I think that body policing that you're talking about can be so harmful to someone, especially when they're at that age when, you know, their body is really changing in these really dramatic ways that can be really surprising. And it made me think of how in 13, Tracy became so resistant to her mom policing her body that when it mattered, when she actually needed it, when she actually needed someone to help her from hurting herself, that bridge had already been burnt. So it goes to show that, you know, girls at any age 
are completely aware when they do and do not have ownership over their own bodies, and it's important for all of us to acknowledge that. I'm so glad that you sent in that response and that you had a cathartic experience listening to our coming-of-age episode. And to all of our listeners, I just want to encourage you to send in your responses, no matter what they are, if, if you had emotional responses to our discussion or to the movies that we watched, or if you even take issue with something that we discussed, we want to hear from you. We want to open up this conversation and, and truly make it a conversation. And you can do that, of course, like Adrian, recording a two-minute or so voicemail on your smartphone and sending it as an attachment to feministpopcorn at gmail.com. And we will listen to every single one that we receive because that to me is the most important part of this podcast. It's creating this community. And we look forward to continuing this conversation with you all in two weeks. I hope you watch these movies because they're all really amazing. I'm so excited for these three movies. Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and co-hosted by Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Twitter at official underscore fempop and on Facebook and Instagram at Feminist Popcorn. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. Sam the movie starts